Hello. Hello. And welcome to Lions League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Tonight at National Gallery Lakes, our actors will read five stories inspired by works on the gallery walls. We'll be reading one story every half an hour, giving you just enough time to hunt down the picture in question, or to grab a drink, or to join in tonight's other events with an inspiration theme. If you miss any of the readings, or being technically well, there will be recordings on the Lions League website a week or so after this event. And if you're inspired to write for us, or just like what you see, then pick up a programme or a Lions League card and come to our next regular event on the 9th of August at the Phoenix, Capital Square. We shall begin with our first story and our first painting. It will be Authenticity and Dollar by Ingrid Yendieski, who read by Sarah Feathers, and is inspired by Madonna with the Iris from the workshop of Albrecht Durer, which is in room 65. Winner of the Bash Bath Flash Fiction Award, Ingrid likes cryptic crosswords, the game of Go, and Python programming language. She hails from the US but currently spends most of the year in Cambridge. You can find links to her work on the project. Sarah Feathers trained at East 15. Theatre work includes all you ever needed. A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Should, Feeling Lucky and More Than Words. And TV includes The Real King Heritage. Sarah! Authenticity and the Madonna with the Eyes by Ingrid Ninjewski. So, I'm just back from maternity leave and I've been asked to give this talk on authenticity and art. My baby isn't sleeping. I'm not sleeping. It's all a bit crazy. When I was trying to get my thoughts together, you know, to actually prepare something, well, my baby sicked up all over my notes. And not just any old sick. Nothing you could just magic away with a wet wipe. Oh no. I'm talking projectile soakage. And by my notes, I mean the notes I borrowed from a colleague who has given talks like this before. So it's not like I had a backup copy, and she's on a holiday and isn't responding to email and so well. Here I am. Here I am. And here we all are. And although I feel I should admit to you right here and now that I'm no big expert on art or art history or attribution or anything like that, when it comes to the painting I'm going to talk about, the Madonna with the eyes. I have a hell of a lot to say about authenticity. Right, so let's get the facts out of the way. The painting's full title is listed as The Virgin and Child, The Madonna with the Eyes. It's oil online, 
thought to have been produced somewhere between 1500 and 1520, and is said to be from the workshop of Albrecht Durer. The art fund launched in 1945, and even then there were questions about its attribution. The minutes from the board meeting in which its acquisition was discussed state the board must not purchase it as an authentic Durer. Then in 1959, it was accused of being, and I quote, almost suspiciously full of Durer motifs, by curator Michael Levy. It's one of three paintings with the same composition, but the only one of three to include a monogram. And it's been discovered that under that monogram, there's a layer of a type of varnish, manila purple, not available for the 18th century. The monogram, probably out of the state more like an original Jura. Later, analysis using infrared reflectography and improved X-ray markers have told us not about the painting's origins and subsequent history. Best guess now is that most of the painting came from Jura's workshop and was probably painted shortly after his death. But then a few little bits and pieces around him later for various reasons. There you go. Now, before you accuse me of not contributing my resources, I did, of course, get all this from the National Gallery's website about half an hour And it's about the sum total of everything I know about this painting from a technical standpoint. So I can point you to some papers where the experts go into great detail about all of this. They are fascinating reads, I'm sure. But I didn't have the time or the energy to and even if I had, I wouldn't have remembered a word of it by the time I got here. I mentioned that I'd not been sleeping much. Anyway, now that's out of the way, there's plenty of time left over to take a closer look at this painting and talk about real authenticity. I mean the kind of authenticity that really matters. The kind that I feel fully and unconditionally qualified to talk about. Here we go. Okay, first off, have a look at the very centre of this painting. That baby is not wearing a nappy. <laughs> I know it's the Lord Jesus and all, but babies are babies, and all babies poo. Sure, the Virgin is a cute little muslin cloth draped across her lap, but that baby's business eh, is aiming directly to sleep attached to a rather elaborate dress. One misfire, and the whole thing has to go in the wash. Ask if you try. That dress certainly would fit in any of their washing machine that I know of, unless the cakey bit is detachable. And then it would require two loads, and would probably still be a squeeze. But it takes ages to dry. That is not its dry cleaner. Were some super holy self cleaning garment. It can't possibly be comfortable. I think I wore the same pair of pajamas for the first three months after giving birth. And I still feel I'm looking pretty squish if I manage to put on, you know, something without an elasticated waistband. Who is stuff like that when looking after a baby? Which leads us right to the complex issues of symbolism and composition. Looking at the image, we have some beautiful irises. 
modeled on Jehovah's glory now in heaven, possibly symbolizing the soul of the Sarah's sorrow of the virgin. We have a wall that we know through infrared reflectography was redrawn after the painting was underway and extended over the left to include that archway. Near the virgin's head, a rose had been underdrawn, but it was not included in the final painting. All of this is well and good, but what I don't see in this painting or in the underdrawings is a plate of biscuits. Or if the virgin's a health nut, which given her figure is a real possibility, a granola bar. IR reflectography has shown that the figures of mother and child were planned very carefully. They were underdrawn, underdrawn in great detail using black liquid paint. The artist knew what he was doing. He planned this image. Therefore, he could have planned in some biscuits. Or a cosy armchair. Or for that matter, a nap. Ah, a nap would be good. The artist could have just painted the virgin in her bed. Eyes closed in some comfy pyjamas. The baby curled up next to her. The sideline position works brilliantly for breastfeeding, let me tell you. But they still put in some lovely JP fabric folds. And the bed sheets instead of the dress. I'm just saying. Instead, there's the virgin sitting upright. Good posture, cradling that baby in her arms. She's outside, her top pulled down, it did wearing nothing but her baby. Perfect golden hair flowing down over her shoulders. Which begs the question, how the hell did she get away with that hairstyle? I think I kept my long hair until, what, six months post birth Before the choice became all too clear. I had to chop it off, or have it pulled out, bit by bit, feed by feed, by tiny, grabby hands. My hair was falling out quickly enough anyway, until I could see. So, I went for the hair Certainly did not let it flow tantalizingly over my shoulder. What was the artist thinking? And another thing, although the virgin is outside, she doesn't look the least bit self-conscious. Must be because the baby's not popping on and off her chest. Distracted by the wind and the birds, that funny thing on the cloud in the middle of the sky. What even is that thing on the cloud? I need a vertically glass left and right to see if she's being observed with her boobs exposed and slapping in a nursing bra that doesn't fit. Doesn't offer any support because, heaven forbid, the breastfeeding women wear a bra with an underwire. Virgin doesn't seem to have a bra at all, actually. Because God loves her. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. It's not just Jura or the workshop of Jura. A lot of artists don't give their lady subjects supportive undergarments. Just have a peek at the tissues in room six or the Poussin in room 19. Breasts floating around everywhere in there once you start looking. Either they were filled with helium back then. Oh, there's something fishy. So, 
many breasts. You never see any cracked nipples on the surface. Christ child, we're perfect, that's sure. There's not even any one side bigger than the other. No unexpected leg down to the milk. None of that sort of thing. And it's not just her breasts that are perfect. The virgin being showered, rested, carefree. Her skin is flawless. So is her figure. Unless that's some sort of 16th century slimming wear she's got on. In which case, we need to import some of that to modern times. You can't see her teeth. But I bet they're brush. I bet her breath smells like...
Gregory Jackson. The winter of 1634 is a cold one. The spun freezes and the fair is still going in late February. The days are short and Isaias finds it hard to mix the paint with numb fingers. Come on, boy, says Villain. I'm not working beyond three today. I need to get laid. It is a grand house in the new style. Herr Kike, the merchant, villain's client, is a short man with a large wife and a negro servant, the second shadow who trails him through the house. The servant has caught a cold. Each time he sneezes, villain starts with brush leaping in his hand. Get me some wax, says Ice. My nerves will not survive this. The merchant is forever moving between the rooms of his house. Azias has noticed a similar restlessness in other clients, the new rich. They never seem entirely happy. This wealth is a novelty and they appear uncomfortable with it. Azias has watched them in the Glotemarkt, haggling with the silversmiths and the craftsmen. They are tight-fisted and argumentative and their wives have eyes that cannot settle. Money is a hot chestnut to be passed from hand to hand. They build their houses, they take on more servants, they gild their looking glasses and fill their coffers. And yet, curiously, they do not appear capable of enjoying these riches. Villain paints a picture to remind them what their toil has reaped. A mirror held up to their Achievement. It is very drear, is it not? The merchant said after seeing Willem's first study. Silver, pewter. I had expected something with more punch, more colour. We may introduce more objects, Herr Kite, Willem said. I erred on the side of restraint. And so Isaias has been sent to bring lemons, a big aroma, and now a rowing crab. The thing sits in a bucket of water at the side of Willem's vast evil. They have learned the hard way about crabs, and lobsters for that matter. On one job in Alkmaar, they made the mistake of cooking the creature on the first day. By the third, the room reeked of rotting flesh. This time, the model will be alive for the sitting. Only after will Willem add a layer of puce. Is this cheating? That the painter does not replicate the leaden green of the living creature? Azias picks up the crab by the edge of its shell, holds it at arm's length, the claw snapping at his fingers, but unable to connect. He ties its pincers with twine and sets it on the pewter salver. Supine, demented, the creature rocks, but cannot right itself. Will you be requiring me? Azias asks. Somewhere you need to be? I thought I might go out to see the fair. Marguerite said it will only be here for a few weeks. Villain flashes him a glance. Marguerite did, did she? 
She showed me her kite's beast yesterday. You goose her yet, boy? Azias, colours, villain can be crude at times. She has been kind to me while we have been here. Villain's face hardens. She is the client's daughter. We will be coming back when the painting is finished. Azias nods obediently and goes back to mixing the yellow for the lemon rinds. Villain sighs. Oh, for God's sake, all right then. Just make sure the mall stock has a clean leather on it before you go. Ten minutes later, and he and Marguerite are out beyond the fields, so close to home, and yet Isaias can hardly believe that the city is near. This feels like a different world. The hawthorn dusted with frost, the frozen canals glassy, pooling cold light. The low February sun is an egg poached in cloud. Where did you see it? asked Isaias. Less than a mile from here. Come on. Marguerite pulls him hard by the hand and he slides on the ice. It's slippery, this world, fast moving and uncertain. The land is still in the grip of winter. But already you can see the change where water meets a clump of reeds or a tree's roots. The ice turning back to liquid. It's so easy to forget, gliding on the hard surface, that they are here suspended, not on earth, but on water. Can you not skate? she asks, as he totters a toddler again in his world of glass. Not well. Villain will not allow it when we are working. He fears I will break a bone. She giggles. Indeed you might, dear Isaias. Out here, anything can happen. He finds a sort of rhythm. His feet at last learn the dance, the blades interlacing along the canal. Marguerite has her hands clasped behind her back. She sings a song that he does not recognise. My father said there were poachers, she shouts back, but I never believed him. They are stopping now by an elm, its trunk vanishing where the ice begins. Marguerite sits down on the bank of the canal. Why are you taking off your skates? As I have said. For a moment he feels the twinge of something in the pit of his stomach. Fear? Excitement? Even though it is still so cold that their breath is visible, he feels too warm. Marguerite looks up at him. Don't worry, she says. I'm not going to deflower you, painter's apprentice. I want you to see this. She lies on her stomach and pushes out onto the ice once more. Azaya sits on the bank, still unsure whether to follow her. Marguerite looks back at him. Come on, he says. On their bellies, they push forward. There is a layer of powder from last week's snowfall, but as this clears with their forward progress, Azaya can see down into the depths of the water, beneath the ice. Another few seconds, and Marguerite stops. Here, she says, clearing the surface with a mittened hand. At first, Azias is not sure what he has seen. The murk below is brown here. The ice cannot be thick at this point, maybe only three doom deep. But against the muddy background, he can see colour. White, or maybe it's grey, feathers, and an orange beak. The head of a goose, but 
on the other side, through the glass. And then beyond the feathers, something else. A dun brown tunic, sandy hair, and the strangely tranquil gaze of a human eye peering from underneath in the world of water. It is the face of a boy, maybe the same age as he is, maybe younger. Isn't he beautiful? Marguerite says. She smooths away the ice until she has created a rectangular frame in the powder through which they may view it. This accidental composition. Who is he? Isaiah says. Marguerite shrugs. Does it matter? He was poaching probably one of my father's geese. Should have thought not to skate at night. She turns her head to Isaiah. Anyway, Bit better than that turgid stuff my father hangs on his walls. Would you not agree? They do not stay long at the winter fair. Marguerite ranges from stall to stall, tugging his hand whenever he stops to examine a ceramic plate or a pewter salver. Don't you people ever stop working, she chides him. They watch the village boys clowning at Colf in the distance. They drink hot bowls of Brennabon, the pig's trotters deliquescing on the glistening surface of the broth. Isaiah thinks of suspensions in oil, the paint he prepared earlier for the lemon rind, the Naples yellow that Willem insists they keep locked in the strong box. How long will it take? Marguerite asks. My father's painting? Isaiah shrugs. A month or two, he says. Depends on how many layers Dylan uses. How can you be so patient? she asks. Isaiah smiles. You get used to it, he says. Herr Kite tilts his head from side to side. Behind him, in the corner, the Negro servant sniffs, rubs his nose with his sleeve. Yeah says the merchant judiciously. Much better. Isaiah shifts the easel round so that the others can see it. Kite's wife, the housekeeper, Marguerite. Willem, standing beside the family, chews on the end of his brush. I'll need to build it up, he says, but you get the general idea. The only question I have says the merchant after a pause, is why you chose to tip the silver dish on its side. Should it not be standing upright? Isaiah sees Willem stiffen for a moment. It is a composition, he says in a measured tone, a series of deliberate choices that I have made, taking into consideration the interplay between the separate objects on the plane, if you desire something other than this, an inventory of your possessions, so may I suggest you approach a draftsman? <laughs> it is Willem's usual reply. The merchant stands for a moment with his hand over his mouth, aware that something has been challenged. Then Zaya sees the man soften and a broad smile breaks across his face. No, it is most excellent as it is, the merchant. 
begins applauding. At first, a single pair of hands clap in the fading light of the afternoon. Then others join. The palette is scraped clean. The mild stock and the knife replaced in the strong box with the paste and the easel flat. By five, the cart is loaded and they are waving goodbye to the cart. Once they are out of earshot, reins in hand, Villain turns to Isaias and hisses under his breath. What a way to make a living. <laughs> Late in April, the painting is loaded back onto the cart and they retrace the journey to the kite's house. Isaias feels a sense of expectancy as the wheels hit the cobbles of the courtyard. He looks to the upper windows of the house. But nobody leans out and calls to him. Marguerite is away in line with her mother. They bring the painting in under a blanket and soon it is hung in the main hall beside the fire where there are other paintings by other painters from the Harlem Guild. Everything in the room belongs to Herr Kite, as Lyons realises. The furniture, the rug on the wall, the ceramic plates displayed on the mahogany dresser, even the inventory of wealth, the pictures themselves, all except one of them. Isaiah sees Willem straighten the frame on the wall and step back. There, the painter says, now, tell me I was wrong about the silver dish. They follow the canal towards Harlem. It's a warm day and the birds are singing. Isaiah can hardly believe the change. He remembers the feel of ice under his feet. But beneath the new season, it is the same landscape. Oh, Villa, look! The tree! The painter stops the cart and Isaiah leaps down, races over the lip of the canal bank and steps carefully to the water's edge. All is silent here now, still and indifferent. The elm tree leans over its reflection, its roots reaching through the surface and into the darkness beyond. Isaiah stands for a moment and remembers the dusting of snow, the slice of skates over the icy rind of frozen water. He remembers a goose's head and a boy's face, and then a touch. Marguerite's hand as they headed for the fair. Come on, boy, says Villain. Time to go. Surprised by Henry Rousseau, which is in room 45. Jenny is from Glasgow and now lives in Midwest. She has recently started writing short stories and poems while her toddler is napping. This is her first published story. She works on a nature reserve for eight years, but now looks after her young son full time. Miranda's writing credits include more than this. Woman Undressed, The Mesmer. Classics include Nurse in Romeo and Juliet and Mother in Blood Wedding. Voiceover work includes BBC Children in Need, Charity and Corporate Narrations. Randa also runs new writing event, Page to Stage. Randa, 
And we found it. We found it. It's the discovery of the century. You go quiet now, standing there in the gathering darkness. I think I can hear your heartbeat. Maybe you forgive me now for slowing us down, for keeping us out here in the dust. I think you do. Because we walk together now, your torch lighting each step, the swish of your machete slower, calmer now. When we finally see the camp ahead, we walk much closer than usual, almost touching arms. We don't see. We're both listening to the night, breathing it in. And so this is our last night on earth. We discovered it. What else is undiscovered? You whisper into the darkness from your sleeping bag. I almost say every new moment is undiscovered. But I keep quiet. Let the mystery cling a little longer to the fabric of the tent. When I close my eyes, I see you. Not your whole face at once, but parts of it. Your brown eyes, your slightly arched nose, your lips pursed in concentration, a trickle of sweat down the nape of your neck. As I slip into sleep, your face starts to shift and transform. Your eyes become amber, your whiskers twitch, damp black nose sniffing the air. I reach out a hand to stroke your golden fur, but you melt away into the darkness. When I wake, your sleeping bag is empty. Outside, in the pink morning light, you are peering into the small silver suitcase that you loved for days in the jungle. There are six camera traps in the suitcase. You're opening them, putting in new batteries. We need to put these up again, you say, without looking at me. I touch your arm. We can't. We've got to leave today. We've only got supplies for another... Shh, don't be such a wuss. You miss. We need proof. No one will believe us without proof. You persuade me, as always. We can eat up the supplies for an extra day or two. We'll eat less, rest more. You are elated when I agree. You even hug me. Your tanned arms squeezing you tight against your ribs. My nose squashed against your chest, breathing in your sweat. I want to stay there forever. But you let go abruptly and turn back to the suitcase. We work together, tying the camera traps to trees, angling the lasers, marking each route with red plastic ribbons so we can find them again. As we place the last camera, your fingers brush against mine. I look up to meet your eye, but you're looking away through the trees, your brow furrowed in concentration. On the walk back, you are silent. We're like a good team, I say, smiling. But you say nothing. Your eyes are scanning ahead, searching among the trees. Back at camp, you are restless. I think hunger is making you jumpy, so I give you some of my crackers. You eat all three at once. 
I go to wash myself in the river. It's been a long, sticky day. When I come back, you've gone. You don't return till nightfall, slipping into the tent without a word, lying down in the same sweaty t-shirt you've been wearing for days. I pretend to be sleeping. You're up before dawn, of course, yanking on your boots. Have some breakfast first, I call out of the tent door. But you're striding off with your rucksack slung over your shoulder. I scramble to get dressed. I don't know which camera trap you'll go to first. I take a guess, but I'm not. The camera's there, but not you. When you find me untying it, you're angry. Don't touch it! You scream. You might break it! I stand back, let you untie it, and your hands are trembling more than mine. Back at camp, we stare at the laptop. Image after image slides into view. You whiz through them quickly. A family of peccaries, a little bluebird, an anjuti nibbling nuts, even an ocelot. But none of this excites you. You curse each one for wasting the shots. You start again with the scrutinising each image, examining every background tree, every leaf, every shadow. Nothing. Our creature is not there. We need another light, you say. No, absolutely no. Just give me two more days, please. Just two more days to find him. I've never heard you believe like this before. You can do that. Take all the food, you say. Take the tent too. I'll follow you in two days, I promise. I shake my head. No, we both do that. We apply for visa extensions, we get fresh supplies, and we come back again. We not. Throw your head back. At that moment, I know there is no hope. But that could take months. And by then, we've moved on, found a new territory. Our only hope is now to strike while the iron is hot. If I could drag you back through the forest, I would. But you're much, much bigger than me. I pack my bags, leaving you in the tent and roast some food. I might not make it on my own, a lonely jungle, but now I'm the only hope for both of us. If I wait any longer, I'll be too weak. I walk for hours without stopping. As dust descends, I see shapes flitting among the trees, dark shadows darting in the corner of my eye. Eventually, I curl up in a hollowed-out tree trunk, my sleeping bag wrapped tight around me. I close my eyes, but all I see is your face, the crease of your brow as you peer through the trees. I try to hold on to your features, but they start to melt. Your eyes turning to amber, your golden hair thickening over your face. I must have slept eventually. In the morning, the forest seems peaceful. Birds are singing, little tamarind monkeys chattering. The path becomes easier, and after eight hours, I reach the wide dirt trap that leads to the nearest village. It's five more days before I made it to the city and got a search party together. Two ex-army paramedics and a local hunter who clear a path through the forest quicker than a bulldozer. I'd hope for more, but the government won't prioritise it. It's not lost, they say. 
we've chosen to stay there. We take enough supplies to last two weeks. The paramedics try to calm me down. There's water in the jungle, and humans can live for weeks without food, they say. But as we approach the camp, they start to warn me. Your friend will be alive, but starvation can make people delusional, paranoid, aggressive. They tell me they've brought a rolled up stretcher and tranquilizers, just in case. When we reach camp, there's no sign of you. I search among your clothes in the tent. You must still be wearing the same khaki t-shirt, same socks, same combat trousers. The laptop is in the tent. I lift the lid and it whirls into life. An image flashes on the screen. Huh? And there it is. Unmistakable. It's amber eyes gazing straight into mine. I gaze back for a moment and snap the laptop shut. You did it. You actually did it. Here is all the proof we need. We can go home now. Each day we go out in pairs, scouring the areas around the camera traps and further afield. A week passes and there's still no sign of you. At night, we huddle around the campfire, flinching at shadows. I try to imagine what you could do if that's when I remember the camera traps. Of course! Why didn't we think of that? We must reset the camera traps. For four days we find nothing. Then suddenly, on the fifth day, you're there. The other says trip of the light, just shadows and leaves. But I can see you right there, peering out from behind a tree. You're in shadow, but the shape of your head, the curve of your shoulder, I'd recognise that silhouette anywhere. The paramedics are telling you where to go from one. We only have enough supplies for journey back. <laughs> just give me two more days, I say. Please, just two more days to find them. I sneak out of the tent just before dawn. I'll hide until they're gone, so they cannot fall to me. I'm tiptoeing to the forest path, and there's a crunch behind me. A hand grips my arm. Don't worry, this won't hurt. I just need to get you out of here. I try to run, but they're holding me back. The stretcher is unrolled, and the paramedic plunges a needle in my arm. Before I lap out, a movement in the forest. A shadow. I look up, and I swear to you, looking back at me. Just for the briefest moment. An instant. Then one. Published 
as well as a historical fantasy novel, Silver Hands. She has won several prizes, including the James White Award, Jane Austen Short Story Runner-Up, and Historic House Short Story Runner-Up. She lives in Bradford, West Yorkshire. And Nicholas trained at Bristol Old Vic. Since leaving, he's toured Austro-Vienna's English theatre, performed in All's Well and Ends Well, and Anne Boleyn at Shakespeare's Club, played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet by Theatre Sotopoccia, and understudy in the National Theatre's production of a small family business, and most recently played Ferdinand Antonio in the Tempest at the Southern Play. Nicholas. Plato once said that each of us is a man divided, always seeking his other half. I suppose this is what Aristotle was thinking of when he called Alexander and me one soul residing in two bodies. The question is, who? That's what I thought. In the early days, we had a lot of fun. Back when we used to hang in the palazzo on the Grand Canal, we used to swap clothes on a regular basis. Then we'd trade places and bite our cheeks to avoid giggling as viewers stared at the painting in battlement. But which one's Alexander? they'd say. When they'd gone, we would bend double with laughter, holding on to one another and wiping our eyes. Only later did the question sink in. Which one's Alexander? Never which one suffices. After a while, Alexander got bored. He was right. Let's conquer India. Let's go to Sofia too much. It was never enough for him. Everyone says we look like twins, and so we are. Twin souls, he seized me by the shoulders and kissed me. You too are Alexander. His eyes sparkled with mischief. Let's make more twins. It'll be fun. First, we gave Darius's daughters matching dresses. It was a pretty gesture, but not bold enough for Alexander. So we began making doubles of people in the crowd. Not all at once. We spaced it out over time so that new generations would discover two figures where once there had only been one. Two plumed soldiers, two observers in turbans, two androgynous youths that, to my mind, looked worryingly worrying like the ghosts dressed in green and coral. Alexander even gave them twin dogs. Look, a feisty, he would say, our sweet twinship reflected everywhere. But I began to have my doubts. In all our years, he never once said, I too am a feisty. How could I know he didn't multiply twins as he had once multiplied Alexander's for his own glory? These people too are Alexander. You are all Alexander! My doubts grew when the dwarf and the monkey appeared. Before that, it had been a dark and a fair child peeping at one another around my legs. That I could accept. But the dwarf seemed to look on the monkey with horror, as if to say, Don't you dare consider me a twin. I recalled Alexander's words to Darius. 
I am king of all Asia. Do not speak to me as an equal. From that day, I stood just a fraction further off. And then here, the child in red, looking up at Alexander from the safety of City Gambus's arms, the same cloak and tunic, the same curly hair, a boy made in his own image. The great Alexander had succeeded in making himself a new twin. All the herds of the centuries came flooding in like the Indus. It was as it had been in life. First the Goas, then Roxanne. Always the next conquest, the new horizon. And I was, as I had always known myself to be, expendable. Insignificant. He didn't even see me, did he? Too busy flaunting his magnanimity to Darius' his wife and mother. I stood on the polished floor of the gallery and read the title of the painting. The family of Darius before Alexander. Bitter tears came into my eyes. Before, before Alexander. Never mind that the whole point of the story was that Sissy Gambus had knelt to me, that she had called me great king when she begged for clemency, that for one moment I had known what it was to have the adulation Alexander had imbibed with his mother's milk. No. Who would come to see a painting called The Family of Darius before Hephaestus? What storyteller would speak of Hephaestus the Great? If they spoke of me at all, it would only be as another Alexander an extension of his all-conquering ego. I turned my back and walked away. This way! A voice echoed through the maze of rooms. A sound of footsteps drew nearer. I flattened myself against the marble doorway, hidden by shadows. But why does it have to be here? said a second voice. Can't you just say it? I could see them now. Two young men in their twenties. One held the other by the wrist, dragging him towards the family of Darius. They were laughing, breathless. I knew the look in their eyes. I'd seen it in the eyes of Alexander, time without number. Late at night, outside his tent, across a crowded council chamber, by my bedside as I lay dying. My throat tightened. It has to be here. The first youth dragged his companion to stand before the enormous canvas, right where I'd been standing moments before, in front of the painting, our painting. Very well. The second youth's lips quirked a smile. He knew what was coming. Will he? His lover took a breath. Will you now? Go. Where's the place? They turned to stare at the painting, now spectacularly empty of, well, me. Viewed from this size, 
side, my absence left an awkward gap. Darius's family gazed at a portion of canvas between Alexander and a dull blank. The two little boys played peekaboo around nothing. And for those, could those be tears in Alexander's cheek? The first youth was shaking. It's, it's not possible. I mean, why? Have I seen an Alexander? That's, that's the whole point. How, how could they even? It's, it's all right. His beloved laid a hand on his shoulder. There'll be some explanation. Restoration work or something. Let's go and ask someone. The first youth continued to look back in disbelief as his beloved led him away. My cheeks burned with shame. I'd done this. To these two, the, the painting had become a precious symbol of their love. And I had ruined it. How many more like them had there been down the ages? How many more were still to come? Without me, there was nothing for them to hold on to. Without me, the painting was meaningless. Quietly, I slipped back between frame and canvas. Alexander was waiting. The force of his hug winded me as our breastplates clashed. His voice was hoarse. I thought you'd left me again. Just getting a change of scenery, I said. Seeing things from a new perspective. Well, don't! He squeezed my hand. I died without you, Hephaestus. You know it. I squeezed back. It was good to be on this way again. It had been a long time. I agree. Let's swap clothes again. <laughs> Alexander's eyes sparkled. They'd had that same spark just before he charged up the bank at Granicus. I wanted to kiss each of them a thousand times. I was hoping to ask, he said. The red looks much better on you. And look, he pointed. I made you a little twin. Commute 
providing fiction in trains, tubes, and cues. She lives in Sussex with her two diverging children. Claire is a former member of the BBC English Laboratory um, company. Recent screenwork includes Brief Encounters and feature film The Hippopotamus. On stage, she has played Lady Grapple in The Importance of Being Earnest and Gratania. Gratiana. Gratiana. <laughs> I'm not very good with Shakespeare. In The Revenger's Tragedy. She is also an experienced voiceover artist.
respectable matrons hang about here, guarded, modest, and properly invisible beneath lace coifs and prim collars, careful not to give away a gram of matured sensuality, whilst it seem, well, unseemly. Oh, how Quinn's old friend Erasmus hated any hint of that in women. He had a special loathing for older women who still play the coquette and exhibit their repulsive, withered breasts. So, Quinn, in one fell swoop, savage as a haircut, you showed off your craftsmanship, your versatility, not just a dauber of society beauties, flattered that sly old dog Erasmus, and last but not least, settled an old score. Yes, Crim, my portrait reveals a little more about you than me. You've seen me before, haven't you? Bothering psychopath in Alice. <laughs> Ten years for me, or at least Leonardo's copy, and thought, Ooh, who better? You're not better. And so I joined the great tradition of older women who should know better. Snow White's stepmother, the spiteful, youth hungry stepmother of Rapunzel, a little morality tale for children. Crazed women who can't let go of their youth and will stop at nothing to close down the demure, dewy competition. The thing you don't know is that I was once beautiful. And that is not just to say I was once young. We all had that patina of youth. I was a very beautiful. Sure enough, Margaret had that before. Inevitably, I became Margaret the Maltasha. Such a mount. Such more would have been cooler up there. One morning, in my pillow cheeked twenties, I woke with a dull ache in my collarbone. Growing pains, I said. Then purple swelling in my fingers and wrists. My collarbone began pulling at the skin as if it had outgrown its tender cover. Then it crept up to my face, the jaw, and then the space between my mouth and nose. My pretty cupid's bow stretched, taut, and raw. This happened over months, but every day I scoured the silvered mirror my face slowly pulled itself out of shape like a of mask. I maneuvered the glass away from the casement and pulled the shutters to a little to soften the dawning reality. It was at this time that I met Quentin Musk's Quinn, we called him. My husband, Dorothy, had commissioned a portrait. Maybe we both had an intimation of what was to come. Catch the rosebud of a wife before she became a thistle. 
Quinn and I met in the Great Hall. That drafty barn with the oily smell of stone and waft of cooking beyond the screened passage. He painted me against a puddle of red velvet. Painting velvet was his trademark skill. I heard he resented these bourgeois vanity commissions, but suffered them because they paid well. He positioned me, hands on shoulders, cool, appraising gaze, the easy arrogance of a craftsman assessing a lump of oak. And then he put the rosebud between my breasts. And I looked at him squarely. He was surprised, affronted that I questioned the great artist at work. What's master? He just smiled. I was to learn later that he liked my cheek. I remember thinking, the rosebud was a sign of intent. I felt plain. Oh, the rosebud. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Carpe diem. Well, I can say, we carpeed that diem <laughs> and many that followed. He would set up his easel, demand that no one, no servants, not even Dolphy, disturb us, and he paint. And, as if on some agreed signal, he would abruptly put down his brush, and wordlessly he'd take my hand. And so it began. Always the same. Quiet, intense and urgent, more than ardent, as if we were both pouring all our unspoken wants into those Done. A duchess and an artist? How 
into my head. It was the phrase we say behind our hands. When a friend's child is not blessed with conventional beauty. I was growing into my words. Becoming authentically myself. Grotesque, yes. Ugly, pretty, with a too strong face, a simian face, <laughs> a monkey for sure, but an amused monkey. And so, I let him paint me. Oh, how he relished it! He said it was to celebrate the distinguished elders of the town. He couldn't be bothered to hide his smirk or the lie. It was no such thing. He wanted to mock me. His bitterness had lasted all these years. After all the women he must have loved and left, I was the one that blanketed. Of course, it was a sensation. A painter at the height of his powers. And a scandalous subject. Bold, shocking. A finger wagged in the face of uppity women. Let you forget yourselves, it said. And as for old France, my consort in this dubious double portrait, I don't know if he thought he was being mocked, but he seemed happy enough to be paid for sitting. And he went straight down to the bison bottle and drank his fee all in one go. That gives you some idea of the distinguished stature of my fellow elder statesmen. So, maybe we weren't nobles. Neither France nor I could claim to be upright citizens. But, ours are the faces you will remember. Not the demonstrate worthies or the identical pearly beauties. Quinn has painted my footnote in history. And here I am, brutal, authentically, myself. How many of us can say that? That is why, when he set up his easel again in the once great hall, I placed the rosebud between my breasts myself, tilted my chin up, Thank you.